Welcome to Lily High on Life. And David Schulberg is our special guest today. It's interesting to be here with you, Lily. I'm going to potentially find out some things about myself that I uh, were not aware of, perhaps. And I thank you for sharing it with our listeners as well, because it's all about knowing people a little better. When you bump into somebody in the street, you have no idea what's going on in their lives or what has what they've been through or not and so this is a way to get to know people a little better so that our listeners can maybe get to know their own friends and people that they know a little better as well so thank you for being here and you of course are a presenter on J-Air you have your own show and what time is it and it's the Israel Connection that's right, the Israel Connection, which uh, typically will be on from 4 till 5 on a Wednesday and repeated 1 to 2 on a Friday. Hmm. And you have a really busy life. You've found all these really interesting things to do once you retired, and we can talk about what retired really means later on. But tell us about some of the things that really make you happy in your day-to-day life now. Well, I'm not fully retired. I still work uh, part-time. My wife has a business, a Kumon Education business, and I work together with her in that business. And for me, it's uh, really a very uh, fascinating experience after my working life where I was in the computer industry, working very much in, in back rooms with computer systems, often not even relating directly with other people, more involved with equipment, machines, computers, that sort of thing. And now to be uh, involved with young children and helping them in their... What's the name of the company? It's called Kumon Education. It's formerly a, it's a Japanese method originally uh, that it, 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 it uh, produces or it does, it deals with uh, maths and English and Japanese, but of course uh, most people in Australia wouldn't be interested in Japanese, but uh, maths and English, which are fundamental skills for people at school, uh, some children want to hone them and, and become really very adept in, uh, in maths and English because it's, these are the skills that are used across all subjects, or some children are, are lagging a bit behind and need a bit of extra boost to be able to catch up with the so rest. So you work with your wife now in that business? Yes teaching well it's 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 worksheet based it's uh, there's very little teaching direct teaching involved it really is a system where the children will learn on their own bat when they encourage when they when they reach a new concept the concept is mapped out for them with examples if they can't get their head around the concept they can ask us for assistance and then they do further and further examples that reinforce this new what age technique group? Oh, children have turned up who were two and a half. Wow. <laughs> One little boy who, uh, when he went into a tantrum because he was doing his kumon, would get up on the on the desk and uh, in, in his nappies and, uh, and we feared what might happen next. Uh, that was uh, one extreme, but on the other hand, we, we've got even people at uh, university level that feel as though their maths and English skills need to be improved and uh, come along and do that at, at Kumon. So it's anybody that feels that they need some extra but help with the, their the, education? The main, 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 mainly students who are in primary school. Right. They find that they uh, are not doing as well as uh, 
they would like. Uh, their self-esteem in these subjects is not uh, as good as it should be, and uh, their parents uh, find that Kumon is a very good way of uh, of getting them to uh, improve, to so catch up with the rest. So you haven't retired; you've changed careers. Well, that's only that's part time, but that sustains me in other things that I do that I don't get paid for. And Jair is out of love, not profit. None of us. Oh yes, it's it's totally um, voluntary. I've been doing my show now for over six years. I think I'm one of the longest uh, stayers on on the station when it comes. I've done at least two hundred and. Uh, 60 programs nominally but then there were a whole lot of other things that I did which didn't get a number that were kind of specials. And the show came out of your passion? The show came out of an opportunity actually uh, with uh, Voice of Israel which was a, uh, a new startup in Israel way back in 2015 and they provided an opportunity when they were giving us the news on Jair at that time they also provided us an opportunity to speak to uh, the people that worked with Voice of Israel. It was like getting uh, interviews on a silver platter that I really couldn't resist. What happened uh, shortly after that was that Voice of Israel went belly up and I'd already got started with uh, the Israel Connection. I wasn't going to drop my bundle just because Voice of Israel wasn't there and no longer to hold my hand. So I, I just, just kept going, but that's what initially uh, got the ball rolling. Oh, excellent. And you found that you loved interviewing people. I uh, loved dealing with uh, Israeli advocacy and issues around uh, Israel. It's a, it's a subject that's very close to uh, my interests and my heart. So I have an opportunity here to talk to people that I would, normally wouldn't get an opportunity to speak to. If, uh, these, these are people of, uh, of some reputation and because I approach them as a, as a journalist, as an interviewer, all of a sudden I've got uh, a ticket through the, the door to talk to people that I wouldn't get the opportunity to talk to it's otherwise. amazing, isn't yes. it? Um, I lived in Los Angeles for 26 years and um, also had access to people that I never thought I'd have access to. And it's a wonderful feeling, especially when it's close to your heart. Um, and at one stage I was... Israeli generals would come out to LA to fundraise for different um, organizations and I'd get to travel with them for three or four days and hear them speak at all so it's it's a wonderful thing to be able to do it's very it's very empowering if you've got uh, strong feelings and beliefs on uh, on Israel uh, and if you have a chance to uh, share those and develop those together with other people that really uh, is, you feel that that really strengthens you with the, the views that you hold and gives you an opportunity to really do something about those views, not just sit back on the couch and complain when Israel is getting bashed continually. Very, very true. Can you sort of uh, recognise or pinpoint where your love of Israel and the advocacy came from? Well, I went to Israel for the first time in uh, 1978 after travelling the world for over two years, it was my the last leg of a of a journey away from Australia for over three years, as as we did in those days. Yes, uh, we're so far away from the rest of the world that we when we go we make the most of it. So it was the last leg, and uh, there I met uh, some family of mine, stayed with them, I went to Ulpan, 
I have a, a fondness for language that uh, so I enjoyed learning Hebrew. I spent time going to Ulpan for the half of the day and then the other half of the day I went down to the beach and uh, did yoga and swimming and other recreational activities on the beach. You can imagine that that was quite a, a pleasant day's activity day after day for quite a few months until they told me at Ulpan that uh, they didn't they didn't see any uh, reason for me to come anymore because my Hebrew was good enough <laughs> that I could just go out now and carry out pre-discourse with uh, people out there on the street. Did you expect to love Israel that much? I didn't really know. I mean, I, I did have uh, a Jewish identity, and I think that uh, most commonly with a Jewish identity, if you've got uh, Zionism that's built into that, it's pretty logical that you're going to be, uh, you're going to like Israel. But you didn't go to a Jewish school. No, I never went to a Jewish school, no. But I did go to Jewish youth groups and Jewish uh, activities, extracurricular activities outside of my school. So I did develop a, uh, a sense of Jewishness uh, through that means. And your parents were traditional at home in keeping the high holidays, or was it more yeah, than yeah, pretty that? traditional. Yeah, not not religious. Me and my father would go to synagogue on the on the high, on the high holidays. Uh, I don't think we even kept Shabbat regularly, but uh, we're very much a traditional Jewish family, and they had a coterie of of their own Jewish friends, and I also connected because of the children that they had, of their friends, so I built up a, um, a large number of Jewish friends that uh, supplemented what was going on when I was at uh, the non-Jewish day school. And your other travels to all these other countries, Israel was last by design so you could stay a little longer? or no, just the way it worked. The US was uh, where I went to first because I got a, uh, a fellowship to go to Columbia University that kicked it all off. And then I just was traveling in the same direction from there. I went from US eventually to London and stayed in London for four months or so. Then my brother came and joined me together with somebody else and we uh, bought a car. I had bought a car already and we drove that car from uh, London to Rome. Both of your brothers came? Or no, only one of my brother, my younger brother, Robert. And when I got to um, uh, to. Italy. I went to uh, Brindisi, caught the ferry there to Cyprus. My brother had left me by that stage. And from Cyprus, the ferry took me to Israel and I landed in Israel at the very end of 1977. Do you remember, what it, was, do you remember what it was like? at that time, traveling on your own around these foreign countries? I mean, as a Jewish, uh, from a Jewish family, parents, especially from, uh, after the Holocaust, mm. are very protective and don't want you to cross the street mm -hmm. by yourself. And here you are on your own, um, wandering around the whole of Europe. Well, my first leg was in New York. Uh, and that's where I stayed, lived there for 18 months and grew very, very fond of uh, New York. New York as we know is a very Jewish city so I was able to connect very much there with uh, other people who were 
who who were Jewish. Every second person you met who was there was was Jewish. But how does a fellowship even? How did you even get a fellowship? It's not something that somebody knocks on your door. What what made you apply for it? Look for it. Well, I'd finished uh, a master's of uh, environmental of applied science in uh, air pollution control at uh, Melbourne University. I wanted to do a PhD. That was the next uh, step logically, I thought. Uh, I got an opportunity to go to Columbia, one of the the most esteemed universities in America. How did that opportunity come about? Because well, you, you write to a university and you, you tell them what your uh, record yeah. is, your scores. So why and did you choose Columbia? What was it about? Was it where it was? Was it the school itself? Was it what motivated you to, uh, to even write away for something like that? Well, I think I went to Columbia because I was interested also in, in New York. I... At the time, I, I had another uh, interest on my plate, so I wasn't going to go there just to be an old stodgy uh, academic. I fortunately had this other string to my bow at the time because when the things fell through at, at Columbia, and we're talking about 1976 when the city was almost bankrupt, they were burning rubbish in the street. I couldn't find a, a research topic to do for my PhD. And I was, uh, the fellowship had uh, run out. If I was to continue studying there, I was going to have to be paying out of pocket. I never thought, after going through free education all my life, effectively mm. thought I was going to suddenly start paying out of pocket when it was so unsure as to what I would do for my PhD. So what happened was the whole thing fell through. I didn't have uh, a great... Um, Fondness and belief in my supervisor at the time. I think he had about uh, 30 odd students that he was supervising. If I ever got a chance to talk to him, it was like for five minutes and he was always uh, saying, uh, I can give you five minutes now, but uh, I've got to go to a meeting or I've got somebody else that I need to talk to. It was always no, 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 no time that I could spend when I had gone through and done a, uh, my honours degree at Monash previously and I had a supervisor there who was beside me the whole time and we developed a very close relationship and I really got a benefit out of doing that research together with somebody that was able to reinforce what I was doing. But in this case, this, this, this gentleman was so distant from what I was involved with I I wasn't getting any gain from him as being my supervisor. And the whole thing fell through because I uh, also was involved in dance already at that stage. I had well, trained I as a dancer. You, was it was it difficult to make friends, or were people very friendly, or did you did you manage to create a social life there for yourself as well? Well, I found people to live with almost immediately. Uh, who um, I still remain in contact with uh, one of the people that I did share the house with at that time and she became a very close supportive friend who would take me into her family uh, for um, for visits uh, away into uh, other parts of the state uh, also to go and see things and do things so together you, so, so you felt welcome you felt at home you yeah I found yeah I found other I found other people as well very quickly uh, who became long 
friends uh, and provided a rudder for me while I was there. And that's so important because back in those days, you couldn't just pick up the phone and ring home every day either. No, no, that's that's true. Yeah, my uh, going back to my uh, parents, my uh, mother was extremely concerned about what I was doing. Uh, she relished the the letters that I wrote. Everything that I wrote was there, uh, you know, paper and, and pen, pen and paper. Yes. <laughs> Does she still have them? <laughs> no, she gave them all to me. How wonderful. You've yeah. got them. I've got the letters again there that I wrote uh, to her so I can uh, go through those and see and relive the experience that I had while I was there. And you were starting to say that you were a dancer. Was that from a very early age? Because I know you're involved in Israeli dancing um, later. Well, I came, yeah, I came to Israeli dancing later. I got involved with a dance company called the Modern Dance Ensemble in the uh, mid-70s. My dancing started actually at Monash. I, I started firstly, I was keen on sport. I played soccer. But one day I sat next to uh, a dancer in a lecture at, at Monash and she told me, why don't you come along to a dance uh, class? And I did give it a try. Because she and was cute or because... No, I didn't, no. I, she wasn't uh, the reason herself. Uh, what uh, was appealing about going and doing dance classes were that when you walked in, you found that uh, there were about 90% of the people there were women and, <laughs> and 10% were men. And of those 10% uh, who were men, uh, probably uh, 80% were, were gay, so they were no competition anyway. <laughs> so <laughs> so you it were was like a dream happy. run. <laughs> yes. <laughs> nice way to go through uni. <laughs> yes. So I started there and then I um, joined a uh, company uh, with a woman called Shirley McKechnie, uh, but then I migrated to what was the Modern Dance Ensemble with a woman by the name of Margaret Lassiger, and that really uh, got, uh, got me going in dance. And I've after being that. there for, yeah, Margaret Lassiger was the mainstay of probably the main uh, modern dance company in Melbourne during that period of time. Wow. And um, so you performed as well? Yeah, we performed. We did a, a season every year at, at the Union Theatre at Melbourne University for, for, two, for two weeks. And until, uh, until 1976, when I went to Columbia, I really performed with that company, didn't um, create dance as such. But when I went away and, and learned so much in New York and also in London where I met other people that I worked together with and came back to Australia in 1979, I suddenly had a new uh, urge to choreograph and so I created a lot of dances at that uh, point of time, which was another uh, way of, of self-expression, not just simply the movement of, that somebody else gave you, devising your own ideas yourself. And that was quite an unusual thing for you to do, for a guy to do at the time. As you said, it was mainly women, uh, but it was something inside you that you connected with about it that got you to continue doing it and and continue it as a bit of a profession, it sounds like, as well. I have been, we did get paid uh, very small sums every, every now and again. A lot of it went uh, back into the into the company, and another, other, when I was in New York, I also got uh, small 
remunerations when I was with a small uh, company there. Really, the the money wasn't the reason no, for doing it. There's a real um, uh, boost you get, a real uh, sense of achievement you get when you uh, perform. It's it's very physical, but it's also uh, very mentally satisfying. And you also ride bikes a lot now. You're a cyclist. Would how often do you ride? And how well, I ride a little bit more because I ride with a, a small number of uh, people on a regular basis, uh, and I've only done that since the beginning of the year. The reason I ask you that is because the. You, you you seem to follow things that give you pleasure and that you really enjoy and they're different things so the dance gives you a type of um, self-confidence and feeling good that bike riding doesn't bike riding you get a different kind of enjoyment and pleasure out of it I don't ride bikes, but I have friends who I think are totally mishiga, so I understand a little bit about the psychology. Um, Are they connected in any way for you, or is it just about the enjoyment you feel while you're actually doing it? Well, there's the physicalities common to To both, both, yes. But I think uh, I've always felt that uh, dance, a dancer at at the highest level, is the most supreme athlete of all. So that's what was um, something that, that, that drove me to be uh, involved in that because it was a way in which I could uh, develop my body skills to the, the highest level that I would be capable of. And then that is so, those things are so completely almost the opposite to what you actually trained for and did in university in IT and stuff. Because back in those days, it was the early, early, early days of computers and technology. And how how were you drawn to that? Or what was it about that emerging technology at the time that really hooked you? With the my academic side, I mean, I was I achieved very uh, very well, very successfully in, in the academic arena. Uh, I um, was ducks of my school, uh, and I fabulous. Your parents must have really been proud. <laughs> yeah, my yeah, my parents were very proud. Of my and I also got uh, a special uh, scholarship which was they only awarded four to uh, to Monash, uh, a special scholarship, which was on top of the, the fact that you weren't required to pay fees as a, as, with a Commonwealth Award. So academically, I was always uh, very uh, interested in developing uh, that side of myself because I, I had the ability and, and the skills. So if you've, if you've got... Uh, those uh, abilities and talents you wouldn't want to waste them I would have thought did you did you do it because you really you had you could see that well, well, my first love my first love was was chemistry when I was at, at school together with another uh, student we would ask the chemistry teacher if we could stay after class and get the uh, laboratory assistant to uh, mix up uh, different compounds and solutions that then we would uh, use analytical techniques to determine what they were. 
So it wasn't envisaging what was going to come next in technology. It was rather a curiosity for the actual science. Well, the science, the chemistry was a love. I had a chemistry set at, at, at home. Uh, I used... Um, I used my chemistry set uh, skills actually in uh, 1971 when I went to the anti-apartheid demonstration and uh, took... Uh, <laughs> I took, asked very took, carefully, <laughs> how so? <laughs> took some uh, devices that I thought could uh, cause a little bit of a stir. I, um, I decided at the end, uh, before I entered the ground uh, at Olympic uh, Park uh, to dispose of them because I didn't think that they were going to do me much good, actually. I th- they were probably going to explode in my face rather than harm anybody else if I ever tried to use them. Anyway, that was uh, one of the things that I did from with my chemistry set. I mean, I also did other things. I, may, I, I brewed beer. <laughs> <laughs> but it so, wasn't like you knew you wanted to be a doctor. So no, I, I wanted more. chemistry was my love. I really wanted to get into research in, into chemistry. But what happened, I think, uh, that put me off that path at the end of my first year at university when I got uh, a vacation job in a research laboratory, I was doing a, a chemistry experiment and it uh, blew up in my face. And I ended up in hospital for a week with second degree burns on my face. Oh, wow. Now, if you know what um, burns are, how they're categorised, secondary burns, because the nerves are still intact, um, the most uh, painful of the lot. And when you get the most severe burns, all your nerve ends are uh, destroyed, so uh, it's no longer so much pain that you suffer. I remember going to the hospital uh, with my head stuck out the window so that the air would be rushing past my face to cool off the, the burning sensation I had on, on my face. Luckily, I was wearing safety glasses at the time and there was another person in the room in the lab with me who rushed me over to the sink and started to wash my face out to make sure that I wasn't going to have any permanent damage from the explosion. So I'm lucky that I did have some burns, ended up in a week in the hospital, but it did perhaps discourage me from going down the path of being a chemist. Yes, <laughs> I, I imagine it would give you second yes. thoughts. Yes. Do you remember if you had any other thoughts about life itself after experiencing that kind of trauma? I, I had a girlfriend at the time who was very loyal to me and, and was stayed with me the whole time. So I did uh, learn a lot about uh, support for uh, for other people when they're in in in, in dire need. And I think that uh, I would like to have the opportunity perhaps to reciprocate when somebody else is in the same boat, because it, it is. Uh, you're only concerned about yourself when you're in so much pain Mm. and anguish you can't give anything to anybody else you just you just all you think about is uh, yourself and your own uh, suffering and do you do you see a progression a personal progression after traveling after experiencing that pain in terms of how you treat other people and how you see other people in the world like do you always really fixed on this is who I am this is what I do this is what this means and then having experienced other cultures other people having experienced pain and suffering yourself do you think that you came out of all of that 
changed a bit or not? And you don't have to have. I'm just asking. Well, I don't see it as being a, a change, a, a, a discrete uh, event that's, that's taken me to a, a different uh, level of existence. I feel like all these things go into the melting pot what it and is. become, uh, and you become the sum total of all these experiences. So this is a really good segue into. So how did you meet your wife, and did you know, and what was the um, what was the circumstance of of you getting married? I got married uh, on the first. Well, I got married in December nineteen eighty three. Uh, I met. My wife, whom I had known already that, that she actually existed because she was connected through a girlfriend I had earlier. So on the 1st of January 1983, New Year's Eve, I actually uh, went to a party together with, with her and uh, it all developed uh, from there. What did you like about her? What attracted you to her? Well, she was a really staunch meditator at that that time, Uh, would not uh, touch alcohol with a barge pole. Uh, And uh, I knew that if I was to continue in a relationship and we were to get married, that uh, I would be expected to go and do the, the meditation course this we're talking about uh, vipassana meditation and the courses typically are, are 10 days of meditation where you don't uh, speak whatsoever for the for the 10 day time and they're quite they're quite difficult some people can't even imagine they could they could do mm. that and they can't even sit uh, in in quiet for for half an hour uh, Ten before days they, their minds get so yeah. totally restless so I did a few of these uh, courses. I, I think I, I saw her as being a very uh, strong-minded person. Uh, this was uh, a skill and ability that she had that I definitely didn't didn't have that I found uh, somewhat uh, appealing. I um, so you met her. We, we had we had uh, a lot. I mean, we, we're both sort of uh, coming from a common type of Jewish background uh, her parents are also of uh, Polish background like my parents are so we have a lot culturally in, in common with one, with one another and if I bring it forward to today uh, I would say that uh, that uh, politically we are very closely together and when it comes to me writing stuff that I want to send for publication to do with Israel advocacy she's uh, fantastic editor. How long has it been now that you've been married? Uh, it's been thirty. What is it? Thirty-eight years. Wow, that really is phenomenal, especially with so many <laughs> relationships breaking down. What I found is that it's heartwarming. I friends who are still together here in Australia when I came back especially it was noticeable were together because they really wanted to be and their relationship had grown stronger and it would seem that some from what you're saying in terms of what you had in common that that is also the case for you guys yeah we uh, I think we reinforce one another I think that uh, my, my wife has changed a bit since those early days I always felt that uh, Leah was uh, 
bit shy and not uh, openly expressive. Not I wouldn't call her an extrovert by any means. And I was more in on that spectrum. Uh, I was more willing to open my mouth and and do things and say things. But I think that uh, she has changed a lot over the years and now is much more forthright in in her views. You've rubbed and makes, on her. makes makes uh, makes her views. Uh, points out things to me very, very strongly sometimes in a way that she wouldn't have done um, 20, 30 years ago. Mm. Were there tough times in your relationship where things weren't that great? Yeah, I think every relationship goes over through times that, that uh, you're difficult. I what think you end you? up, you end up, uh, I think at the end of the day, you end up. Uh, doing a, a bit of a calculation in mind as to uh, what would be the situation if you were to not to continue a relationship and try and imagine that as, a, as an alternative. Even though in a relationship it's often not, uh, you're not, you're not in dreamland by any means, you don't have the same uh, sense of of love and, and yearning and desire for, for somebody as you have in an early part of a relationship. I don't know of anybody who's managed to maintain a relationship for decades that they keep that type of closeness with another person. Things things change. But it's not just pragmatism that kept you together. There was there were other things that 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 saw you through and got you through the tough times. And can you identify what it was about her personality or your personality that managed to bring it all together and, and make it good again? Because it would have to be good again after you've gotten through the pragmatism of, gosh, it would be worse if we weren't. Yeah, I suppose I realised uh, perhaps some things about uh, myself uh, shortcomings about uh, my own uh, character and, and behaviour that she made me realise. I think that I uh, saw her as being uh, tolerant of of some of these characteristics or my my nature. So. We were just talking about things that we learn about ourselves, especially when we're in a relationship for a long time, and um, and things that our partners might help us get through as well. Is do you have an example that you might want to share? I suppose something that's uh, the freshest in my mind is what is uh, is current, rather than digging into sure. the archives. Of course, <laughs> uh, with. Um, I have perhaps I have a tendency to, with um, my wife uh, in the company of others to say things about her in front of other people, which is not necessarily a fair thing to do. Mm. Uh, if she if she wants something divulged about what she thinks or what she does, mm. she should be really the person that, that does that, and I shouldn't be putting her on onto the spot by saying things about her maybe not even critical but uh, I think that uh, she says to me I think it's something that's that's embedded now in my in my mind as a as, as a way of being I suppose you still infringe when you uh, are trying to behave in a certain way to improve yourself 
but this this behaviour is to uh, not not uh, do or not say things about somebody. If you don't have something good to say about somebody, it's better not to say anything at all. Were you even aware that it embarrassed her or that she didn't like it? Well, if she were to come back uh, when we were together and, and tell me, and it would happen repeatedly, I would quickly be able to get the message that that right. was something that was concerning her. It's Yeah, and, you know, that example actually is not uncommon with a lot of men because they don't realise and they themselves have got a tougher skin or they've never had it done to them as well and so they don't understand yes. the thing. Yeah, it happened the other day that uh, my wife did what I do to her. <laughs> <laughs> and I called her out uh, immediately for doing that and... She didn't think it was a serious uh, offence, but uh, I think that it definitely crossed the line as far as I was concerned. But I think it's also wonderful <laughs> that you can laugh about it now too. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not a make or break uh, situation, but I think uh, if, if it was to continue and I wasn't going to do something about it, it, it could be quite uh, annoying for her yeah. that I, if I would do that thing repeatedly. So on both sides now, is it a lot easier for you to tell each other when things bother you about each other? Discuss it rather than let it build up. Yeah, there's no point in uh, in keeping things to yourself that are a concern. If I think that she's certainly uh, my best uh, sounding board, without without any doubt. And in the jobs that you had, and some of them were really quite substantial and and in large companies and corporations you actually managed a lot of people and teams so you have good people skills and management skills did you find that challenging um being in charge of people and seeing projects through what were some of the things that you learnt while you were doing that about managing other people well, typically on uh, the teams that I worked in, I was in a, uh, a team leadership role, which meant that you also were involved in the creation process. The thing with working together with other people is that uh, if you're an independent uh, worker where you don't have responsibility for other people, you can just do your work and not have to worry about what uh, other other people are doing you're just responsible for what you do when you're in a team and have responsibility for others then you're concerned about what everybody's doing what everybody's output is and that means that you have to not only do what you're doing but also be responsible for other people doing their work uh, fruitfully and it means having to sometimes uh, draw people to account and and be and be critical of, of what, what they're doing and not uh, find that you will put somebody offside. If you have somebody that is part of your team you're, you're working with and uh, they become antagonistic towards you for, for, for any reason, you're going to lose them and it'll be very hard to uh, maintain cohesiveness in a, in a team. So it's very important, I, I found, to to be able to, to measure how you deal with other people and in order to get the maximum productivity mm. from from others. 
And from what I can see, you were actually very successful at it. Um, did you get a lot of satisfaction from your work? Did you really enjoy it? I did enjoy my work, although when I look back on it, the routine of getting up in the morning and typically working in the city, uh, joining the, the early morning rush hour and, and getting into the city and, and all, all that, and then the routine of, of coming home after the hard day's work of being a bit tired out and having to have a family now to... Uh, to be together with and have enough energy to uh, to put into that, I don't have any regrets about uh, about that. I don't really miss that uh, at all. It um, it was a, a daily humdrum that uh, was uh, yeah, something I'm I'm glad to have behind me. And now what I do, I do simply for the for the love of of what I'm doing for the for the pure satisfaction. When I uh, go ahead and do an interview, uh, I, I want to do it. It's not that I have to do it because that's part of the job and and that's what uh, my employer expects me uh, to do. There is a certain expectation, of course, when you have a, a weekly radio program and you have to come up with something every week. <laughs> <laughs> and it's uh, the show's on Wednesday and it's uh, Monday morning and uh, all the, the feelers you put out to people... Uh, for them to come and talk to me have not uh, come 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 through you really wonder what in the hell you're going to do it uh, <laughs> I tell you it does produce a little bit of tension but it's not it's not really uh, one that really gets to me I found that always when I've been in the situation that I've managed somehow to uh, to work it all out and make it happen yeah it just it's amazing how that happens. How many kids do you have? I've got two sons. And are they both here in Australia now? Yeah, both live very close to me, yes. Both uh, within walking distance of where I live now, which is, which is really nice. Would you say you're really close to them or is your wife closer to them? Who's got the... No, I don't think there's any uh, difference in the closeness of my wife and myself to my sons. I mean, one of my sons actually, at one stage I, I set up a, um, a business opportunity. I, I was going to uh, set up something which was in the home automation arena and I was working on a, on a product that was leveraging off something that was available in the uh, open source arena. And my son was extremely adept. My younger son is extremely adept at uh, technology. When he went to uh, Bialik at his last year of school, when he was te when he was selecting his subjects to do, uh, one of the, the teachers there at the school said to him, because one of the subjects that he would have naturally gravitated towards was computer studies but um, the teacher said that my son would be completely bored by doing computer studies and discouraged him from doing that and instead my son uh, was put through the purgatory of doing Hebrew in 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 his final year of school but of course done for the purpose of giving you a bit of a, a boost with your results you know doing that extra subject as a as a as a language always uh, helps in getting the score elevated but because my son was extremely adept technically, 
he came into this uh, business concept together with me and we were working together for quite a long time on this uh, idea. Unfortunately, it never uh, was successful because the, the platform that we were relying on had uh, technical faults, but it would have been uh, something that um, would have been a very interesting uh, product if it, it would have seen the light of day. So it, it turns everything on and off in the house? That's, is that that was, it, was? it was like a, um, a, a server platform for home automation and it would be the, the, the system that would control various uh, aspects of, of home automation. Home automation being uh, an area that I got particularly interested in. I think there's still a lot of uh, potential for that in the future because we're moving more and more towards it. I stayed at a hotel in Las Vegas where everything was controlled from an, an iPad and it was phenomenal. Would you still like to do that you haven't done yet? What are some of the areas that you see in your future as giving you pleasure? I don't think I'm going to take up anything completely new, although I did take up something completely new at the start of uh, COVID, and that's something I can see myself extending. Uh, that's uh, playing piano. Oh, wow. I can see a piano behind us while, my we're, mother, while we're talking. Yes, my mother uh, went to a conservatorium in Russia, so she used to be really good. So I've learnt um, piano, largely uh, self, self-taught with uh, wonderful online courses that I've found. I have, uh, I started it all off by doing a course at the University of the Third Age in music. So I got the, the music foundation and so I could read music properly before I started learning the piano. Oh, wow. And just the other day when I went into uh, office works to, to buy something, uh, the woman who taught me, her name is Sonia, who's uh, a wonderful uh, dear lady who was my teacher there, who's now 88, was, was sitting there in a chair together with her son doing some photographs at office works. So I, I told her that, uh, unfortunately, I'm not doing my piano every day, but I think I've reached a plateau. And uh, she, uh, she's very proud, I think, of the students and, and what, uh, what they've done. She's got another student, um, uh, Maya Forsheimer, who's uh, learned the piano as well, went through her course. Well, and I'm... he not only did the piano, but he decided that he's going to learn the violin as well. Wow. And he's older than I am. <laughs> <laughs> David, I'm really, really <laughs> impressed because I keep saying I'm going to go back and learn the piano because I have one here and I just never get around to it. So <laughs> thank you for well, that little name. Give, give it a go. There's nothing more satisfying than sitting in front of a piano and playing something that sounds like music. Of course, yes. if anybody else was to listen to it, they would probably want to leave the no, room, no, but, but <laughs> it does uh, mean the timing probably isn't quite uh, right when I when I play. But I certainly know that there's a bit of a a, a bit of a musical uh, little to to what I play. Well, and Lily High on Life is all about feeling good. So it sounds like you really have a plethora yeah. of. You're making me feel things. guilty after this interview. I think I feel need <laughs> to go home and do some piano practice. <laughs> If it makes you feel good, do it. Thank you so much for sharing with us today. I've really enjoyed getting to know you a little better.